Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, Election Day coming up on Monday, municipal election, and uh, the uh, form research poll that everyone's talking about today is uh, certainly something that's, uh, I think, going to have some determination on what's going on. It essentially says there's a dead heat now for the mayor's race between Fred Eisenberger and Vito Scrow. 39% for uh, Fred Eisenberger, 38% for Vito Scrow. Uh, there were others in the race, obviously, but they're way, way down the list. Uh, the 50 mayoral candidates all polled about 12% collectively. So it's it's down to these two, uh, which is rather surprising and rather interesting as we head into the final couple of days of the election. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity, by the way, just a few minutes to weigh in on this. And I'll open the lines up uh, for your emails, your tweets, and, of course, your phone calls uh, for your thoughts about what's going on with the mayor's race and who you're going to be supporting or who you have supported, maybe if you've advanced poll uh, was whether you actually you cast your ballot. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. I want to get Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University, in on the conversation first of all, and then we'll go to your calls. Henry, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Okay, I'm happy to be here. Are you surprised by the numbers? I was getting a sense the last few days that uh, that the race was tightening between the two and that it maybe could go anyway. The One of the first things I'll say right off the top, of the 1,556 people interviewed by Forum, I was one of them. Oh, really? Yeah, I was called for the poll. So I, I, I'm always interested when I've been polled six or seven times already in, in this uh, in this municipal uh, election race, and Forum was one of them. Your so, phone's ringing off the hook, Henry. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, well, when they call here, yeah, my wife gets a little annoyed. She says, oh, God, there's another polling firm calling about the mayor's race. <laughs> but anyways, I like to see professionally. I just like to see what questions they're asking. Yeah, and and what was it like then since we went through the process? They were thorough. They had more questions than any other pollster that's called me, and they were very thorough about And, of course, it just focused on the two main uh, uh, candidates, as you mentioned, and uh, mainly about the LRT and how it would affect and how strongly I felt about things, about Will I, you know, and also whether I was likely to vote or not and how strongly I was certain I was going to vote and so there was a lot of in- questions of what we saw about intensity, intensity to vote, intensity to support one candidate or another, and intensity of my views about the LRT, and then a bunch of demographic questions. I, I know that they like to brag, Forum Research actually, that did the poll, bragging about the fact that they say are the, the most accurate firm in the business when it comes to predicting provincial election results. They've been pretty close on, on most of them. Because uh, there's a lot of people out there doing this stuff right now, Henry. And, right. This, and Forum does have some legitimacy. The Nanos polls, of right. course, on a national basis do too. Right. So, so uh, you know, you, you can take this for what it's worth. I, I guess it's going to upset some people, probably, uh, you know, hearten a lot of other ones. But what's this do uh, when a poll like this comes out in the waning days of an election campaign? Well, I think it should make people more interested because what they're saying is your vote counts. If it's if it's very very close uh, like that, it, who knows? It could be one vote could decide it. Uh, you know, certainly. So uh, it, it it's quite possible. Uh, same thing true for the uh, councilor races. Uh, you know, uh, one vote could possibly do it. And I sometimes I like to talk to my students. I keep track over the years of different, uh, you know, uh, votes that have taken place and where where one vote did count. So that it happens from time to time. So, but it is very close. I hope this will get people out to vote. I hope we get at least forty percent of the population voting in this mayor in our municipal race on on Tuesday, on Monday. One of the questions. Well, I don't need to tell you, obviously, but uh, since you took part in the poll, uh, was about LRT and and the priorities. Uh, uh, and, and I know that at least one candidate, uh, Fred Eisenberger, has said through the course of this campaign that he doesn't think LRT is the most important issue. There's other things to be talking about. Clearly, that's not what the uh, the poll says, though. Yeah, I think people have focused on it. Uh, because, 
you know, still they think it's it's an open question. I think what Mayor Fred probably is saying that we've already really made this decision. We started it. We should focus on other things. I can understand why he's saying that uh, because of, you know, his commitment and he's put so much time and effort into it and he just wants to move on to other issues. Uh, but, you know, there's still... There are a whole bunch of people say, well, I'm really not sure we should just view this as a done deal. Let, let's go back to it and see what's going to happen and, uh, and, and lo- really look at uh, the possibilities one last time. So it's, uh, it is, it's come that way, and it's, uh, you know, transit, transit's an, an important issue, and we just know in our area here we're going to get more, we have more congestion uh, we can just, and we're getting more people coming in, especially in the lower city. We're gonna, we're gonna have all sorts of condos being built, and uh, we all know the thing is that uh, from West Toronto westward, people are just moving. Uh, as you go away from West End Toronto, the housing becomes more affordable. It's just not really affordable in Toronto anymore. So people go from Toronto to Peel, then that's too expensive. They go into Halton, which is Oakville and Burlington, still too expensive, and they just move on into into, into Hamilton. And we're, uh, you know, that we're just going to get more and more people because of simply the, the prices uh, east of us. And uh, we're going to have more congestion, and we're going to have to figure out how to do it. And it's going to be true up in, up in East Flamborough and Waterdown. It's, uh, we've, we've just have to be proactive, I think, because we're just going to have more and more people here. And we're just going to become a more and more important city because of all these people. It's interesting to see how this ranks, of course, on the priorities. And, and right. I, I'm, I wasn't surprised by it, frankly, Henry, no. because I've, I've heard this on the show Right. Uh, at least for the last year, year and a half. And, and I think why we still have this LRT hangover is because a lot of the people that, that call in or have tweeted or whatever uh, are, are upset that they didn't have a say in this issue uh, mm-hmm. because it's never been on a referendum. And, and even I know that some people will say, well, you know, the last election was the referendum. Not really, because there had been no provincial commitment at that stage, no money on the table. And if you recall, uh, Fred Eisenberger's position on LRT last year was to strike a citizens panel, and he says we'll see what they say. Mm-hmm. And then you had Brad Clark that wanted bus rapid transit, and of course Brian McCaddy was the advocate for for the LRT mm-hmm. thing out, out and out. So that was still very much up in the air right now. Uh, at least it was four years ago. Now it's there. Now the money's on the table. And I guess the wild card in this whole thing, of course, is, is Doug Ford's assertion that look at if you don't want it, you can have the money for something else. Yeah, and that uh, throws that in. I guess my, my my view, and of course, many voters may disagree with me. I don't really think that a referendum or people, you know, voicing at any one point in time what we ought to do is the right thing. I think the best thing is that listen to the candidates. Who seems to, you know, uh, you know, have the values and the and the intelligence about issues and the thoroughness, and you vote them in. I I basically trust good people when we elect them. So I. I, I think the best thing is vote for the person who you think is best for mayor and counselor, and then trust their judgment. Of course, you can contact them and tell them what you think about things. But, th- you know, you've been on council, so you know things are very, very complicated. And so you really need somebody who can really dig into it. The average voter simply doesn't have the time or the ability to dig into all the ins and outs, especially when you're doing dealing with these very, very big, expensive issues where a lot of money's on the table, where there's a lot of impacts on people. Uh, yeah, you just have to. I think the best things go for the best people, and and just uh, trust them to 
you know, work work things out for you. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always asserted that, look, that's their job. Right. I mean, that's why we put them right. in there in the first place. Right. And, and, and I know the people that will hear that and they'll say, wow, that means that you don't want to hear public input. Sure you do. Sure you do. You want to hear what the people think. That's why they're Absolutely. knocking on doors right now. That's why they have phone numbers. And, and you can contact them and tell them how your views are. But and ultimately, though, it's got to be the elected representatives that make the decision because they are the ones that are controlling the money, and that's why we put them in there. They're, they're the ones that decide on policy. We can't have referendums on everything that's going to be contentious, or we're never going to get anything done. That's exactly right. And this is something, for example, this issue's been boiling for a long time. And, you know, there's all twists and turns and new things coming up and new consequences you start to thinking about. And uh, it's, it's an extraordinarily complicated issue. It's extraordinarily, uh, I mean, I like to listen to people. I have my own mind, but I like to listen to people on all sides. And it's amazing, even for people on both sides, they often have different reasons why they come to the same position, whether yes or no. So I'm always interested if a person tells me I'm yes or I'm no, and I'm, you know, what, what's your reasons for? And I'm always very interested to hear the reasons. So it's a very, very complicated issue. This is going to be an interesting election, not just for the mayor's race, but for so many others. Uh, those that are always saying, look, it's always the same old people and the same old faces and they do the same old thing. Uh, some of those people may get elected. There have been some long-term veterans, of course, on council, and I think most of them are probably in pretty good shape to get reelected. Mm-hmm. But there's going to be new faces, and, and new faces mean new ideas, and, and who knows how that's going to impact council. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct about that. I agree with that 100%. I mean, you know, especially in some of the downtown wards and with the redistribution, right. uh, people running in different wards right now, it's, it is like a new ball game. Yeah, and one thing that's also interesting, two things that I would say just really interests me. Uh, I've, I've seen some of the counselors and some people trying to waffle on this issue. Uh, you know, you ask them about the LRT. Well, I'm not necessarily against it or for it. Uh, it's not a priority. And you know what happens? Voters on both sides get so angry at this. They know when, when, a, when a counselor is, uh, you know, when a candidate is waffling and sitting on the fence. And I just, you know, you, and they, you get, they now are getting hit by both sides. Maybe the per- candidate thought, well, I'll be a smart guy. I'll try to confuse them or I'll try to fuzz the issue and try to finesse it and get my way through. I find voters, they know they're being finessed. And they are really upset about counselors who don't take a, a clear stand and seem to have a, have, have a, a reasoned position about it. So I, that tells me, I mean, the voters are really into this. A lot of voters are really into this, paying close attention to what the candidates are saying. And, you know, I think this is really good. I really, I really like it when the citizens are engaged in an election like this. No, oh, it's fabulous. And, and yeah. for those that say, well, I don't have enough information, well, then you're not paying attention because it's available. You can go to the city website. You can go to the Metrolink website. You can get all the numbers you want. You can see what the plan is supposed to be, how much it's going to cost, how much snow clearing is going to cost. It's all there for you. Right. And if there's anybody knocking on your door this weekend and says, I, well, I'm not really sure, then you know what? They don't deserve your vote. Because they haven't done their homework and they don't deserve to be on council. This this issue has been vetted and debated time right. and time again. It's it's time to either put up or shut up, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think I think at this point, anybody running for office needs to have a clear position on the LRT. I mean, it's an eight. We've been talking about this for eight to ten years, and you're right. There's so much information out there. So many candidates have talked about it. The city has provided stuff, and there's a lot of groups have. I mean, I'm paying attention to I. I uh, to a lot of the business groups, a lot of the developers, a lot of people who who come in and bought land and they're making decisions about what they're going to do, and you know, and you have some, you know, you having a lot of pe- a lot of the not surprisingly the business community and, and labor unions as well 
are very strongly in favor of it because they made a calculation that this is going to be economic prosperity for the city. They may be right, they may be wrong, but that's the calculation they've made, and they're and they've talked about it, and they're talking to people about why they're doing this, and a lot of them have put a lot of money into into this, uh, you know, one way or another, and so I'm I'm trying to pay it, you know, listen to those people. I'm surprised they haven't got quite as much uh, publicity for their views uh, as I expected they might be. You know, I'm talking about the Chamber of Commerce and the realtors and the unions and some, and, and, you know, they know, on an issue like that, I would have, I would have suspected that uh, people would have heard a bit more about them, but uh, any event, that's, they, they, I think they should have worked much harder to try to explain their positions. What about voter attitudes, Henry? You and I have talked about what's gone on in the last couple of years. I mean, there's a guy in the White House right now that's got zero political experience, and, and the country voted for him. Uh, we have a premier in this province that has minimal political experience, one term on council, and he had actually had the worst attendance record of council while he was there, but he's he's the premier of the province. Uh, does, that, does that filter down to the municipal level? Where are voters angry enough with the system to, to start to, to cleanse, uh, for instance, Hamilton City Hall? Uh, Toronto was going through the same thing, but let's focus on the Hamilton situation. Uh, you know, that's a great question, and I just saw an Ipsos repoll that uh, I got came across my computer yesterday, and uh, is, it said that looking at people, this is people in Canada in general, but I think it applies to the province and to the city, is there's a lot of people who are satisfied with a lot of things that are going on in Canada, but there's a lot of people who say, listen, we have a lot of problems, change is happening quickly, I'm unhappy, and then what it does is it makes them more open to people who've never, who have no political experience or have what seemingly are radical views about politics that makes them willing to vote for those type of people. And I said, yeah, that's not only true in Canada, that's <laughs> the President of the United States, it's the Premier of the province, and uh, it may or may not happen here. But voters are open to something new because there's, there's, there's a lot of people who will feel threatened and upset by the amount of change. And we're having a lot of change in Hamilton. Uh, some of it's, for some people it's good, for some people it's bad, but it's really opened up the minds of people that this is not politics as usual. We're into a situation where things are changing quickly and you've got to assess what's the best way to deal with these changes and we have to elect the people who can basically think through these rapid changes and figure out what's best for our city. And, and we tend to, I know i got about 30 seconds left, right. we tend to look at big picture items like LRT and right. uh, you know economic development, whatever the case might be, but then you start knocking on doors like many candidates have. And, and I find out that, uh, you know, so-and-so voted for that candidate there because, you know what, they delivered a blue box to them when they called for it. Or, you know, they got yeah. my snow shoveled uh, one day when the plow missed it or something like that. So be- different people have different priorities. That, that's right. People have all sorts of different issues, and that's right. It's a complex, you know, comp- a complex array of issues. And, yeah, vote. Voters need to do their homework when they vote, but they should certainly do that, and they certainly should vote. Henry, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, very good. Good talking to you, Bill. Take care. Henry Jason, of course, political science professor from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to get into the tariff issue once again. As I've said, when the trade deal between uh, the three countries, Mexico, the United States, and Canada, was struck just a little while ago, uh, we on this side of the border were disappointed that the tariffs didn't come off. We kind of anticipated, well, if we get a new deal, then they'll lift them. Well, they didn't. Apparently, that's a separate negotiation, we were told. So as a result, there's some back and forth that's going on right now. And we're told that the U.S. and Canada are working on coming to some sort of a solution on this. However, they're holding hearings in Ottawa right now, and one steel executive says the problem here is Christian Freeland. So her handling of the file, he says, is hurting us, not helping us. That her ego is getting in the way, so she's in the way over her head. Pretty strong words. 
Uh, and uh, this is uh, all coming uh, from a, a gentleman by the name of Barry Zeckelman, chairman and CEO of Zeckelman Industries. I'm going to get Ian Lee into the conversation from the Sprott School of Business up at Carleton University and get some comment about the tariffs. Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure, Bill. Uh, Mr. Uh, Zeckelman has some pretty strong words and yeah. some pretty strong opinions about Christia Freeland. Um, you know, I, I certainly haven't phrased uh, views that strongly, but it certainly I've expressed similar sentiments. Uh, and uh, part of the reason I couched it and, you know, pulled my punch a little bit is I'm not privy. I'm not in the room. 99.9% of us are not in the room with the players, with the negotiators. Mr. Zeckelman met President Trump privately in Washington. Mr. The, this steel executive, this Canadian steel executive, Mr. Zeckelman, met the U.S. trade negotiator, Lighthizer, privately in Washington. He has had face-to-face, tete-a-tete, personal conversations about this exact and precise issue that is being negotiated. And he is a steel executive. He is in the steel industry. This is what he does for a living. He is the head of a company that makes and sells steel. So nobody can say that this guy does not know what he is talking about. Nobody can say that or even suggest it because it is so obviously patently nonsensical. He, the only charge you could say about him if he hadn't met Trump and Lighthizer was, okay, you're being an armchair quarterback, you know, you haven't talked to any of the players, what do you know, Mr. Zuckerman? Well, we can't, uh, critics of him cannot even make that argument. And he claimed, I've read the, the, the transcript very carefully, he claimed a deal could have been had months ago, and the deal is right there on the table right now, and the deal is very clear. They're saying that the U.S., uh, he says that both Trump and Lighthouser have said, we will get rid of the tariffs 100% if you agree to a quota. Now, I don't, I'm not a fan of quotas. It's managed trade. I don't believe in managed trade, but that's the way it is. We have to deal with reality and not what we would like it to be, some imaginary reality. And imagine that Donald Trump wasn't president. He is president. He is the decision maker. He wants a quota, and that's his price for taking the tariffs off. And and so I I found Mr. Zuckerman's comments to be very very trenchant and be in describing the situation and at the simultaneously I don't even know if that was his intent to reveal that the government of Canada has been concealing this information from us because they said well there's no deal there's no possible deal we're just talking away. Apparently, the deal's been there all along. But didn't we hear that about the, the trade negotiations, too, Ian, that the, the, the deal could have been there as long as you, uh, you know, give up your, uh, the, your supply management, as long as you do this, as long as... In other words, there was a list of, of demands, uh, and if we met all of them, but that, that's not negotiation, that's capitulation. That's not how you're supposed to negotiate, is it? Well, it depends on how badly you want to deal. It really does depend on how badly you want to deal. I made that argument many, 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 many times about the, the NAFTA negotiations, that, you know, we knew what they wanted, and, and, and I argued our strategic objective was not to protect six or seven industries. It was to obtain unimpeded access to the U.S. without harassing tariffs and so forth. So that should have been our negotiating strategy, objective, excuse me. And, and then we should have used the protected industries as leverage, as bargaining chips. And the, and the Trudeau government said, no, 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 we're here to protect those protected industries. At the end of the day, after 14, whatever, 15 months, they ended up caving in anyways. So it wasn't as if they didn't give what the Americans were demanding. 
And all I'm saying on this instance, if we accept Mr. Zeckelman's word, and I have no reason not to, he says the deal is there now. Accept a quota, agreed upon quota of how much you can sell to the states of steel, how many tons of steel, and in exchange they will remove the quotas completely. Now, that seems to me to be a fairly straightforward deal because you negotiate the thing to la- to come to an end at the end of 2020. Why the end of 2020? Because the new president is sworn in in January of 21. And so, you know, so for two months, excuse me, two years, from now until 2000, the end of 2020, we have a quota uh, agreement. Okay, if that's what it takes, I mean, I think that the, the tariff is far more pernicious than having a quota agreement. Um, and then waiting out, waiting, waiting out Donald Trump until he leaves office, and then we'll go to the new administration and say, okay, now let's let's go back to business, normal business practice. I, I got to ask you though, because I, I, I saw that indication too that that he's had dined with Trump, and he, he's had meetings with Lighthizer, at least one meeting anyway, face to face meeting. Yeah. And, and my first impression I got, and I'm not trying to defend Christy Freeland here, but and I'm wondering if, if in, in fact, if Mr. Zeckelman's attitudes here is based more on ideology than it is on pragmatism here. I got it Obviously, different. he's a fan of Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I and we, if don't. we learned anything, Ian, it's, it's not yeah. to take Donald Trump at his word. Yeah. I interpreted it a little bit differently, but maybe we're saying the same thing in different words. I interpreted that he's a businessman, and he clearly respects businessmen. And in his disparaging comments about, you know, she's way out of her league, I mean, if you look at her career, and I have looked at her career, and I'm, by the way, I am not disparaging her career. I'm just putting it on the table. She was a member of the what what the British famously called, and Jeffrey Simpson from the late of the Globe and Mail used to call the chattering class. And full disclosure, I am a member of that same class. The chattering class are journalists and professors. And we don't run companies. We don't run governments. We don't run anything. We criticize everybody else. We critique everybody else. And so people in the, quote, real world, end quote, I mean, I think I'm in the real world, too, but I get the, I get the reference. People in the real world, and I mean by that CEOs and prime ministers and deputy ministers and cabinet ministers, don't have a lot of time and patience for people like Christia Freeland or me because they see us as just, you know, armchair quarterbacks. Uh, talking heads. And, and so I didn't, I, I don't dispute what you said that he's uh, simpatico with Trump. I don't think, I do not believe he's simpatico with Trump on his vulgar language and his racism. I think it's, it's more on the, you know, he's pro-business, he's pro-low-taxes, that sort of thing. And what businessman isn't? I mean, every businessman wants to make money, and they want the government to get out of their way. And Donald Trump says all those things. You know, we're going to deregulate the government and make the government smaller, and we're going to cut your taxes, and they're all just saying, oh, hallelujah, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, so my point being that they're sure he's simpatico, but at the same time, I don't believe that that colors or jaundices or contaminates his statement that there is a deal to be had, but we are what rejecting it. And, you know, if that's the case, we should be having at least a conversation about that deal in Canada, of whether we ought to be rejecting it without a public debate. I didn't know such a deal existed. I thought that there was no agreement of any kind whatsoever, because that's what we've been told by our own government. Now we find out that there is a deal, but we, the, our government has rejected it without telling the Canadian people what the deal entailed. You know, and I, I, I get that, and, and, and I... If, in fact, that's true. And, uh, you know, he says Lighthizer told him that. He says Trump told him that, uh, which is not uh, unusual, obviously, for Lighthizer to be singing from the, the, the team so- to- songbook. Sure. I mean, that's what, that's what his job fair is, enough. right? Yep, fair enough. Uh, but by the same token, 
Uh, you ha- first of all, I, I, I have some concerns about Trump and, and truthfulness. That's one element of it. Yes. But what about the rest of the steel industry? I mean, this is Zeckelman, uh, who obviously likes Trump and, and likes Trump's policies, etc. Why isn't anybody else in the steel industry on this side of the border speaking up and say, yeah, yeah, we can live with that. We can live with quotas. I don't hear anybody saying that. Um, you're quite right. Um, my you're asking me, so I'm going to give you yeah, my yeah. reaction. Um, and and I worked for ten years in in banking, where I met one hell, pardon my language, a hell of a lot of business executives. And I continue to meet them in in, in Ottawa because a lot of them come to Ottawa to lobby, and I meet them in the downtown professional organizations and so forth. Most business leaders are terrified of the media. People like you, that, I mean, they just they're just terrified. I've had many business leaders over the years come to me and say, "How come you talk to the media all the time?" I said, well, you know, they phone me, and I like to talk to them. Well, what are you doing that for? They almost see you as an alien uh, force, <laughs> you, the media. And they're just freaked out, terrified. I really mean that. Bill, I really mean this now. And they they just, uh, most of them are very uh, self-assured in their own hierarchy. You know what I mean? Every, they, they're the top dog. Uh, and they know that they can't control, in a media interview, they can't tell the journalist what to write. And they, that lack of control makes them feel, I guess, vulnerable, and they don't trust the media. And so most of them avoid the media like the plague. The thing I thought when I read these comments was, holy Moses. <laughs> that's that's a that's a first. I mean, this is almost a a man bites dog story. I mean, CEOs almost never ever criticize the government because they think, hey, we got to deal with them in the future, and we might need something from them tomorrow or next week. So never criticize our own government. And so I was astonished that he came out so strongly against Christy Freeland. I really was. That was an astonishing uh, move on his part. Well, yeah, and, and I got a problem with that. Anybody that makes it personal like that. I mean, if he had said, yeah. look, it, I think the Canadian government should, should make the deal. Uh, and let's face it, Christy Freeland gets her marching orders from, from the, the cabinet. I mean, you know, and from the prime minister. I mean, yeah. even when we're that close to, to what turned out to be the USMCA deal. Remember, she had to go out to Saskatchewan to meet with yeah. the prime minister to say, should I or shouldn't I? That's right. That's so, right. I mean, I think, his, I think his anger here is, is misdirected to a certain extent. Uh, I, I, I do accept that point, uh, Bill, because, I mean, at the end of the day, the prime minister is primus inter pares. He is first amongst equals, which is nonsense. He is first, period, full stop. He is the top person. He is like the president of the United States in our country. He signs the bills. He makes the decisions. He appoints the cabinet members. He appoints superior court judges. He appoints deputy ministers. The power of the prime minister is profound, and he makes the decisions on the final, whether there's a yay or a nay on any trade agreement. So she, at the end of the day, is a minion, a very skilled, highly you know, intelligent minion, but she is merely doing the bidding of, of, you know, uh, uh, of the prime minister. The other element to this, and, and again, I don't see this in any of the comments. Of course, I don't have the text of what Zuckerman said to the committee. We just got the story itself about about the tone, obviously, yeah, and some of the yeah. comments. Uh, is is you know there's there's no number attached to this. I mean, even if if Zuckerman is is advocating that Canada cut a deal here and and say yeah, let's do quotas, what's the quota? I mean, because um, they they put a quota right. on automaking and you know during the USMCA deal, uh, yeah. which we were able to live with, and some people right. don't like it. But I mean, it was it was compatible with what we could do. We yeah. don't even know what the U.S. is proposing here. You're quite right. You're quite right, and that's all the more reason why we should this should be ventilated and we we should be having a conversation in Canada about whether we ought to do a deal, um, a quota in exchange for uh, re- revocation of the tariffs or elimination of the tariffs, and and then of course the very obvious question is okay. 
<laughs> how big is the quota? Are we getting a big quota, meaning we can export basically everything we're exporting now, or are we talking something that's going to chop us back by, I don't know, 10%, 20%? Yes, we've got to discuss that. We don't just sign anything blindly, but that, again, I, I'm just, uh, I was, the, the, the biggest shock for me, aside from the fact that he came out, any CEO came out against the uh, government of Canada, inside Canada, the second biggest shock uh, was the fact that the government has concealed that this offer has been there as a standing offer for quite some time, and they did not share that, disclose that with the Canadian people to have a debate and a conversation. And then we can decide, de- decide how much we want to give up, if anything. Maybe we don't want to give up a penny. Maybe we don't want a quota at all. But at least we need to have that debate because the people in that industry, they have jobs on the line, and they're the ones who are going to bear the burden of whatever decision is made. And uh, from the damned if you do, damned if you don't department, uh, we, the chattering class, would be the first ones to criticize the government yes. if they did that, saying, what are you doing, negotiating in, in the media? <laughs> This is true, Bill. This is true. Good point. Touche. <laughs> Been there, done that, Ian. Both of us have. Yes, so. <laughs> we have. I have, too. Full disclosure, yes, I have. I, I have not yet seen a response from uh, from either the, the Prime Minister or Ms. Freeland on this, So, and, and that'll be interesting, whether there's deniability here or whether they say, oh, yeah, we meant to tell you that. Uh, we don't know where they're going to go on this. This is, I'm, I'm, you know, once they get past the, you know, the ritual denunciation, I'm disappointed, whatever, that he went and spoke out like that. I am going to be as absolutely fascinated as you are uh, how they're going to deal with the fact that they had not disclosed that there is this t- offer on the table that would get rid of those tariffs like overnight. Um, which, you know, I, I, would re- I really want to see what they're going to say. I mean, they may defend it that they rejected it, but. The question is, well, why didn't you bring that forward and disclose that to people so that we could talk about it and debate that? Because maybe it is a best way to go as a short-term solution. Trump's only got two more years in office. I do not know if he's going to be reelected. Nobody does. But he is term-limited, we know, under the U.S. Constitution to eight years. So even if he is reelected, and that's by no means a done deal, that's by no means clear. Even if he is reelected, he's only there for uh, six years from today, basically, and that's not a long time in the in the history of countries. Well, if uh, Zuckerman's comments were meant to uh, start a conversation, he's certainly done that, oh, hasn't he? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Ian, thanks yes. so much for this. Have a great weekend. Same to you, Bill. Take thanks. care. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of concern about what's going on in Washington these days, obviously. Uh, on the uh, international front, uh, President Donald Trump says that now it looks like uh, U.S.-based Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi is dead uh, and says that's a bad thing. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, and says, that, well, he was actually quoted this morning as uh, suggesting that uh, if, in fact, uh, they found out that the Saudis were involved in this, that there will be severe ramifications. That, that was his phrase. Uh, seems to be hedging on this, and a lot of folks are wondering just about his resolve in this issue. I'm going to bring uh, Elliot Tepper into the conversation here. He is a, a professor emeritus of political science uh, from Carleton University and, uh, uh, of course, expert on politics, terrorism, and U.S. politics. Elliot, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Is, is, is Trump waffling here, and, and why? Everybody's playing for time till they can get something lined up. The Americans clearly would like to maintain an ongoing relationship with Saudi Arabia that works to their benefit, and in particular, the Trump administration has counted on Saudi Arabia to be the linchpin of their Middle East policy, pushing back on Iran. And as we know, there's a personal relationship between 
Jared Kushner, the, in a sense, the young, the princeling of the Trump administration with the princeling, actually the prince of the Saudi uh, dynasty. So, and beyond that, there's all the rumors of long-standing financial interest uh, between the Saudis and both Donald Trump organization and Kushner's businesses. So there's a, a lot going on, but basically, I think everybody's playing for time right now, till they can get their their um, their stories straight. The United States is is uh, pressuring apparently Saudi Arabia to come up with something that would be considered plausible deniability. Uh, so the, I, the notion that severe consequences will follow depends on the stories or the uh, the um, report. Uh, out of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, meanwhile, we've been told for days, Bill, they're going to have a comment, and they're doing their own report, and we've not heard that yet. This morning's paper, the New York Times uh, are reporting, that the Saudis apparently are coming up now with a scapegoat, that they have discovered they have a um, senior high-ranking intelligence officer who may have misunderstood the comment by the crown prince uh, to, uh, in a sense, apprehend this critic and bring him back to Saudi Arabia, which would be illegal. They're talking about kidnapping. Sure. But uh, it went wrong, and now they're, they're, so they may have found their sacrificial lamb. But isn't that... <laughs> I've heard that story before. I, well, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? Yes, well, you, uh, you know that was David that was Beckett, right? I mean, this is, uh, and it it took them four days to come up with something, and that seemed to be, in my mind, and I think in a lot of people's minds, observers' minds, uh, what was going on here. So, look, we got to get our story straight here, guys. That seems to be the situation. It's also, uh, and keep in mind, that's this morning's story. Yeah. If this one looks like it won't uh, fly, because after all, that still implicates the crown prince. Are we going to get another version of it? Uh, this is now entering a whole new phase, unfortunately. Domestically in America, the right-wing media apparently is now picking up on anything they can to basically slime the now deceased, apparently, apparently deceased journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So now they're bringing out things that others uh, have brought out, connection to the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, closeness to uh, to the Qataris, who are at the moment on the outs with Saudis, and that this is the murky politics of the Middle East. So th- we're now leaving the realm of trying to figure out what's going on to various vested interests trying to figure out how they're going to handle the situation. Well, and we, we already know about the, you know, the pillow talk that goes on between Sean Hannity and, and the president every night. Yes. Uh, so clearly, I mean, there's a strategy that's being developed here, and, and, and it's, it's not a, a new game for these guys, really, is it, Elliot? I mean, yes, the, their whole game has always been, right, let's smear our enemies, and, and that's to discredit them. And so, you know, you don't build anybody up unless you're on the Trump team. But you just put your finger on the essence of this current stage, uh, this current phase, which is the game. We've gone away from the apparently monstrous uh, murder of a, of a journalist, and, and keep in mind this was done in Turkey, uh, in what was supposed to be uh, basically sovereign, there's a whole separate sideline on this, sovereign uh, Saudi territory inside Turkey. Then, you know, the torture and the dismemberment, and I, I can't even go into the details. We've gone away from saying, where's the justice and what's the story, to what's the game. 
And this is a shift that I think is very unfortunate indeed. Will we ever really find out, and will anybody actually pay, pay the cost, or are we going to now wrap this up into the miasma of midterm politics, ongoing Trump organization, business interest, and, and Jared Kushner's, and will, will we ever get any reckoning for what is a, clearly a monstrous crime? But, and again, I know that Trump's already denied he has any interest in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, any, any financial interest, which is just not true, of course, but uh, nonetheless, he says it, and his, his base believe it, and Fox News believes it. So, and, and Jared Kushner, you probably even more so as, as time goes on. And, and I know that when this story broke, uh, I guess almost two weeks ago now, Elliot, there were calls immediately, for, especially from some of the Democrats, saying, look, cancel that arms deal. That, that's not going to happen, and that's business. And I know that nations like this don't necessarily throw away deals like that because you, you can still wrap somebody on the knuckles you can still express your anger at something without cutting off economic relations with them right now i think the real story is how much pressure is being put on the crown prince to carry the blame on this if he can get away with sustaining his position within uh, saudi arabia and therefore you know the middle east and around the world or can, can he escape the blame, or, or is he going to have to somehow or another pay the cost? The stability of the Saudi kingdom, uh, monarchy, the, the state, is at the minute an open question. Will the king himself finally decide, we can't get away with this, uh, we're going to have to do something dramatic, we're going to maybe have to replace the crown prince. Remember, he changed the order of succession yeah. on, on behalf of this crown prince away from uh, another that was the lineage that was already lined up. All of this goes back to the nature of the, the Saudi kingdom, which really is a kingdom more than a state, so that it's all the succession politics from Ibn Saud's many wives and children and, and the lineages that branch off from that. So uh, harem politics. If if this becomes a destabilizing element within the stable but fragile kingdom of Saudi Arabia, that changes the whole equation, the geopolitical uh, situation of the Middle East. And, of course, since oil is involved, it, it also changes everybody's reckoning on, you know, what kind of car we're going to drive and who pays what at the pump, and back into domestic politics with those even affect the midterms and all kinds of other considerations. Will... Saudi Arabia stay stable uh, by getting away with this uh, one way or another, or will Iran now benefit as Saudi Arabia becomes uh, destabilized over this event? But you know, and, and again, the politics of this are, are such a big part of this, and they do seem to overshadow the fact that a journalist was killed here. Yes, uh, that's, and, that's and I think I think we can take that as a given, and and that's that's somewhat problematic. But uh, you know, the, the things you're trying to add these pieces up, though, Elliot, and you've got Trump making a phone call to the king, not to the crown prince, but to the king, and then Trump is announcing, of course, on the White House lawn that well, we we think it might have been rogue elements. Like that came out of a phone conversation. Right. It seems like okay, this is going to be part of our story here. Story, uh, from story what I know one. about the Saudi situation over there, Elliot. If you're a rogue over there, you lose your head. I mean, it's not as if there are people walking around thinking, I can do whatever I want. You do what you're told by the king or the crown prince, or you just don't exist. Yes. Uh, the the notion that this somehow was an underling who misunderstood, you know, how much of an underling would you have to be to misunderstand? If you're that close, you're really not an underling. You're part of the, you're part of the power structure. So right now, the micro elements of this are 
can anybody come up with a plausible enough story to come out of Saudi Arabia to allow the status quo anti to, you know, can, can we get back to normal with Saudi Arabia as quickly as possible based on a reasonable enough story? Or is this story now going to expand? Is it going to take on new dimensions? Is it going to begin to truly alter the relationship of the United States and other countries, Canada included, uh, with Saudi Arabia? And will Saudi Arabia stay this stable but fragile entity in the Middle East, or are we headed into even more uncertainty in one of the most volatile and murderous parts of the world? What do they need for proof? Uh, Trump is still skeptical, says it looks like. Uh, the, the Turks have already said that, look, at they, they told Reuters the other day that they have an audio recording indicating that Khashoggi was killed. Yes. As a matter of fact, it was actually it pretty gruesome. Uh, they, they, they suggested yeah. there's actually audio of, of them torturing him, cutting right. his fingers off, is, is what they described. I haven't heard it or seen it, but that was what the report said. So, I mean, it's pretty descriptive about this. I'm just wondering, what's Trump have to hear or see to finally come up and say, okay, uh, we, we've got to move on this? Well, the Turks are an interesting question, Mark. I've been trying to track this down. What's in it for the Turks? What, what's their game in all of this? Uh, this is not an administration, a, go- a government that has been, uh, you know, uh, very favorable to journalism at home in Turkey. And the, uh, the, it's, it's one of those listed in everybody's list of states of where journalists are imperiled, and now suddenly they're doing this. So what are the Turks up to? And I can't answer that. But it does have something to do with the politics of the Middle East, uh, Turkey's relationship with Saudi Arabia. Are they just trying to, as has been speculated in the press, they just want, to, they want some money out of this somehow or another, or some kind of other kinds of leverage. They're at odds over Qatar. They're, so there's a, the murky politics here and what Turkey is up to. You've asked what would it take. We know that Turkey has been dribbling out, uh, bit by bit, information at key moments, so that uh, when Pompeo's on his way, suddenly there's forensic evidence, evidence, for the very first time, not speculation, evidence that the murder had been committed. And they continue to say, now we have more evidence, we have more evidence, and it comes out at, at key moments. What would it take if they release everything they've got, and it, it's conclusive, then the U.S. has to decide really what to do if the Saudis continue to not come up with plausible denial. Look at the webs that are being woven over, over this uh, murderous act, uh, clearly by the innermost circles of the Saudi government. You mentioned money. Uh, there was a story earlier this week, too, that the Saudis had written a check to the U.S. government yes. for millions of dollars. Uh, they, they say it was ostensibly to finance the, the, the efforts uh, against right. uh, Assad in, in, in Syria. Uh, but we, who knows? I mean, but the money did transfer. Well, so is, is, million, is that hush money? Hundred million, and it was as Pompeo was landing uh, to have his conversation with the monarchy, and this was money that was pledged earlier to say we're going to help. The Saudis had already said we're going to help stabilize Syria. We're in all of our conversations. We're overlooking the volatile nature of the region, and the Saudis are a player. So the Saudis have said we're going to help America stabilize Syria by giving them the money needed to apply locally in Syria to further American foreign policy goals in their fight against ISIS. All of this then gets circular, but what an interesting time to deposit $100 million uh, into an American bank account. I'm sure it was just coincidence. Well, that's what they're saying. Yeah, <laughs> and, and of course somebody's going to buy this. You know, the other things uh, on the topic of murky waters here, they, you know, we're not dealing with black and white here. 
Uh, I know Trump says that Saudis are a great ally, and you want them to be because that's where the oil is and that's where a lot of the money is. But uh, but there there's a lot of evidence that uh, that they are not a great friend of the United States and some of the things they've done in the past. And you've got to wonder, Elliot, about what strings they're pulling in the Middle East. The politics of the Middle East is so murky, so complex that almost day to day, even if you have, in the old phrase, you have to have a scorecard to know who the players are. Even if you've got the scorecard to know who the players are, you don't know what they're doing uh, from one moment to the, from one element to, of this to the other. What about the Kurds? What's their role in all of this? So this is the bigger picture in the Middle East has been the astonishing collapse under our watch, in a sense, as we've been watching of the state system, the Arab state system, which was created after the end of the First War, carving up by the Western powers of the Ottoman Empire and, and creating entities uh, which the West wanted for their own imperial purposes and primarily also for oil. None of these states apparently have viable borders, and therefore they've been held together by autocrats who have been behaving just as we're seeing them behave now all these years. The collapse of that system with the Arab Spring and the collapse of Syria and the uh, emergence of ISIS, remember, that wasn't that long ago. ISIS said, we are eliminating Sykes-Picot. That is, they said right out front, uh, they videoed this, the arrangement that was set up by the imperial Western powers at the end of the uh, Ottoman Empire, the end of the First World War, we are going to not recognize those anymore. So the reorganization of the Middle East, the post-ISIS consolidation in Syria, all of that's going on, and Saudi Arabia is most definitely a player, as is Turkey, in all of this. And keep an eye on Iran, because if it's good news, bad news for Saudi Arabia, it's good news for Iran. And, and I think that's really, i got about 30 seconds left here, that's really the overarching concern at this stage, is, is, is where are these dominoes going to fall? Yes, and, and in an unstable region, if a stable but fragile player has misplayed its hands so so absurdly as apparently has gone on in front of us with this apparent murder, then we are now entering new territory. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. I appreciate it. I'm sure we'll talk about this again in a few days if we get some new developments. Have a Certainly great weekend. Will. Take care. Take care. Elliot Tepper, uh, Professor Emeritus uh, from Carleton University, specializing in uh, foreign affairs and U.S. politics. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.